Okay, I gotta tell you a funny story. Last night I had a hard time falling asleep. It happens periodically. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna try this like noise thing. The green noise, brown noise, white noise, and all kinds of noise. I tried all of them. I was wide awake. Two o'clock in the morning, I put on one of my old sermons. I was out like that. So if for no other reason to subscribe to the podcast, insomnia is a really good one. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that the Wednesday night Bible study starts up again this week. Um, so we'll meet in the cafe at 7 o'clock uh, if you have, um, want to join us for the Bible study. I haven't decided, no, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to study until Wednesday night, but uh, we'd love to see you there. We're in a series about James. I know that probably doesn't surprise you. This is week eight, and we're still in the first chapter. This text is rich. There's so much in this text, it's almost hard to even figure out what, how much to mention. It's, it's hard to move forward, but today we're going to trudge forward another two verses. Um, and I want to sort of remind us as we go, James was the half-brother of Jesus. He came to believe in Jesus only after the resurrection. During Jesus' ministry on earth, James tried to have him stop because he thought he was crazy. And yet he becomes the leader of the new church in Jerusalem. Now we may look at that and go, oh, that is such a great position. It had to have been horrible for him. The church in Jerusalem was under severe persecution. When you read in Acts that they shared everything, it was because they couldn't get anything. They had to depend on each other to survive. The greatest persecution of the early church came in Jerusalem from the Jewish people because they'd rejected the Messiah. So he wrote about trials because he was literally living at ground zero. Their faith in Christ had seemingly ruined their lives. They were no longer welcome in the synagogues, in their jobs, in the public square. They couldn't trade, and soon their very lives were going to be threatened because they believed in this Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were in the midst of trials, and they needed God's truth. They needed something to hold on to. They needed advice on how to get through today, much less face tomorrow. That's the context of this letter that James is writing. We've been learning about how God wants his children to respond to trials. We've talked a lot about trials. We learned last week that when we surrender to Christ, we're immediately reborn in the Spirit of God. We're immediately given the Holy Spirit. We go through a new birth a spiritual birth. We become a completely new being, and that's something only God can do. We're not an improved version of our old self. We're a completely new, improving version of the person God promised that we would become. In other words, you don't need more of the Holy Spirit in you. God gave you the full dose at birth. You and I just need to learn how to surrender to allow him to manifest himself through our lives fully. We surrender. He is more obvious. As John the Baptist said, less of me, more of him. We have to learn how to surrender. How to allow the full Holy Spirit that's in us to have complete and total control. We have to trust that God knows what's best and God has given us everything we need if we just get out of the way and let him do it. We surrender more. He does more. God did not give us doses of the Holy Spirit in some installment plan. We already have all the power we need. We just need to learn how to release it and allow ourselves to experience all that God has for us. 
just as kids go through growing pains physically, we have moments of our lives where we surrender more and therefore go through spiritual growing as well. God calls those trials. And James says, look, if, if we persevere through trials, if we stop doing stuff to try to fix it, if we surrender and allow God to work through us and for us, we will be literally changed. God will change us into someone who's perfect, complete, and lacking nothing, which brings us back to persevering in trials. It is in trials that we go through spiritual growth spurts. If you think back over your life, the number of times you've grown closer to God, I guarantee you, you were in a trial. When you look back at the times when you really depended on God, you were in a trial. It's in trials that we learn how to surrender to the Holy Spirit instead of doing what we think we should do. Controlled by our minds, we do what we've always done before. You see, you and I were born in a fallen state where all we had to interpret the world was our mind. We didn't have the Spirit of God to tell us what to do. We lived in our flesh. Our mind would look at the world, make interpretations, make determinations, decide things, and we would react and act based on what we think is best in the moment. And usually what we think is best is to protect ourselves and our reputations. We're driven to the end of the trial to get to the least amount of damage as possible. But James says, if you want to be complete, if you want to truly follow Christ, if you want to do what first fruit people do, you got to stop doing what you've been doing. You've got to quit trying to evaluate the world through your mind because your mind is lying to you. You got to stop trying to hinder what God is trying to do in you, through you, and yes, for you. Trials disrupt our plans. James says we fall into them unexpectedly. Part of what bothers us so much about trials is that they're disruptive to the future that we've already planned for ourselves. We have this idea in our mind of how our life should go, how it should be, what we should be doing, what we'll look like at 50 and 60 and 70 and what we'll accomplish and what God will do for us and how blessed we'll be. We have this picture in our mind that we've made up. And then we get into trials and we realize that maybe, just maybe, we're not in control. We think our life should go one way and God says, no, I'm taking it another way. Our initial response to that disruption is usually anger. We may couch it as frustration, but it's anger. We hate being reminded that we're not and have never been in control of anything. We've created in our head the way life should go, and when it doesn't go that way, it, it, we lose control. The problem, and particularly with control freaks, which, by the way, we all are, we have in our mind an idea of how things should go. And we decide in our mind that God owes us that promise that he had nothing to do with. We've decided what should happen, and we put God's stamp on it, and then we expect God to do what we told him to do. Because, don't miss this, we think we're in control. For some reason, we think cancer, birth defects, accidents, violence, poverty, and hundreds of other problems and trials should happen to somebody else. That God somehow owes us protection. That if God loves us, he owes us a wrinkle-free life. 
we actually embrace that fantasy as our reality, even though it's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, the opposite is in Scripture. Those who are called to follow Christ end up in trials. They suffer like he did. They give up their own lives for the purposes of the kingdom. But our knee-jerk response in our flesh without the Spirit is when things don't go our way, we get angry. Take something away from a child and you'll see it in its rawest form. Okay, we can call it disappointment if it makes you feel better, but remember, we said we were going to be honest about things. Deep down, when things don't go our way, we're angry about it. So James told us in trials, we have to persevere and find God's will. And through the process, he will regenerate us. Make us into something totally new. Something we can't do on our own. Something our mind can't even conceive. Think about that for a minute. People have been living their entire lives focusing on what their mind tells them, what they understand, what they interpret. And God says, I'm going to do something your mind can't even conceive. You're only going to experience it in the spirit. There's no way you're going to figure this out on your own because I'm doing it and you're not. And oh, by the way, I'm in control and you're not. God's going to make us into a perfect child of Christ in an imperfect world and still in an imperfect body. James told us we're a kind of first fruit, the first of those who are going to show the world what it means to walk by the Spirit and not by your mind, to show the world what it means to be regenerated by God. So let's go back to our scriptures and see what James has to tell us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. That's where we dropped off last week. Know this, my beloved brothers. Okay, what do you think he's going to say? I love to play this game in the Bible. When they say, know this or hear this, I always stop. I don't read ahead and I go, now what would I say? He's just told us we're first fruits. He's just told us that, that we're being regenerated by God himself, that we're becoming someone new. And then he says, know this, my beloved brothers. In other words, it's important that you know this. Maybe he'll say something like, perhaps God will do what he promised to do. Maybe the next thing will be a lot is expected of us as first fruits because we represent him to a fallen world. Maybe he's going to tell them the truth of God can transform anybody who surrenders to him. Maybe he's going to say, you and I are the truth of God, and we're now becoming one with God's truth where it's hard to separate us from truth. All those are true. All those are powerful. That's not what God does as he tells James what to write next. Look at what he tells him. Every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Where, where did that come from? We were talking about being regenerated. We were talking about being first fruit. We were talking about showing the world everything. And all of a sudden, James does this like switch to... Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. See how quickly he jumps to a new topic? You're a first fruit of God, reborn spiritually, a first fruit, and then he basically sends us a time out. Go be quiet. Listen, don't do anything. Don't get angry. Go sit over there. Now notice, when scriptures do this, it's easy to just read through it. 
Oh, okay, we're on a new topic. No. Notice that when the topic changes and ask yourself, what am I missing? Because everything in Scripture is linked. Everything is related to everything else. James didn't just suddenly start a new topic. What he's talking about with anger has something to do with our being regenerated and how we're to live through trials. You're now a first fruit. And he says, look, you're followers of Jesus. When a trial hits, I've got some advice for you. Be quiet and follow. Your out-of-control flesh wants to control everything through anger. In your entire life, every trial has resulted at some level of you and I getting angry about what happened to us. As we get more mature, as we come to church more, we learn how to cover that up a bit. But deep down, we're still going, I don't deserve this. Someone else has to be to blame for this. That shouldn't be happening to me. I'm a good person. These things happen to bad people. Forgetting that we're all bad, every one of us. None follow God, no, not one. But our flesh always asks, why me? Why did this happen to me? I thought God loved me. I thought he cared about me. You see, my mind can't wrap itself around what God's doing, and I'm not in control, and yet God owed me the future I thought I was supposed to have. So let's unpack this a bit. Someone in your life told you that when you get angry, what are you supposed to do? Count to 10. My problem is when I get angry, I count by 10s. One, ten, boom. I think they meant seconds. James is more like, no, probably ten days. Maybe ten months, maybe ten years, maybe never. Maybe you're never to respond in anger to this situation. You fall into a trial, you realize you're in a trial. What are we instructed to do as God's first fruits? Well, we've learned first we're to consider it joy. God's working in our lives. He's going to grow spiritual muscles. Second, we need to commit to persevering through the trial and doing only what God tells us to do. Third, we need to surrender everything to the Spirit of God and abide in Christ throughout the entire trial. Fourth, we're to hold on to His truth, His promises, and let God take us through a growth spurt spiritually. And now James adds to that. Manage your anger by going to time out. Be quiet and go abide in Christ. When you realize that you're in a trial, stop doing everything and go with God. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Be quick to hear, he says. Have you ever noticed that you can't hear if you're talking? You ever notice that? You can't hear if you're thinking about what you're going to say next. You can't hear if you have a dialogue going on in your own mind about what you should be doing and how people are thinking about you. People who are reacting with emotion, they can't hear and they definitely can't listen. The next time you watch somebody who's angry, just watch them. Just put aside everything, step back and watch them. Watch how poorly they listen. Watch how poorly they hear. Watch how poorly they interpret what's going on around them. Most of the time, people make the situation worse because they open their mouths. 
doesn't take long to begin hearing someone say, that's not what I said. Where did you hear that? How did you? I didn't say that. You don't know that's true. Why do you think that? What's making you act this way? Just calm down. Or as James would say, be quick to hear. Listening involves receiving words, but hearing implies listening with a desire to understand. You see, most people, when they're angry, they can't listen and try to understand what you're saying. They have no desire to understand what you're saying. They're angry. James says, be quick to hear. And by the way, make sure you know what you're supposed to be hearing. Often when we're in trials, we don't listen and we don't hear. We don't try to understand the situation. We misinterpret what's going on around us because we're busy talking, scheming, and trying to fix everything. We think we're in control and we start doing exactly that, trying to take control. We become focused on doing instead of being. We become focused on actions instead of hearing. We become focused on uh, lies rather than truth. You see, in trials, what James is trying to tell us is, you've got to let the Holy Spirit take over. You've got to learn to trust His truth. When we realize we're in a trial, we should become a sponge. We should receive all that's coming into us, allowing God to shape the situation for us, getting His perspective on what's going on, allowing other believers to share what they believe the Holy Spirit is telling them to share with you. Let me just stop here and tell you something. When somebody you know is going through a trial, they don't need your opinion. They don't need your judgment. They need you to be on your knees asking God, what do you want to reveal to them so I can help them understand? Because the only thing you should be focused on when any of us go through trials together is, what is God doing? And how do we get on board? We need to let God shape the situation. We may need to listen to world's experts, doctors and lawyers and attorneys, whatever it is, listen to them, but weigh that advice. When you're in a trial, you need to hear from people who have the Holy Spirit in them. That's why later on, they'll say in in scriptures that if any of you is hurting, if any of you is struggling, come to the elders and let them pray with you. You need to surround yourself with people who are plugged into the Holy Spirit, who can hold your arms up when you're fatiguing. Listen to them, but give them the weight they deserve. Take time for the shock to wear off. When you realize you're in a trial, just stop. Look around, go, wow, I'm in a trial. I don't like this. It's okay, just spend some time with that. Don't do anything. Just acknowledge that you're in a trial. While most of the world is listening to the advice of people and presumed human experts, James tells us, I want to take you to higher ground. The voice that you and I need to be laser focused on, the one we're to be quick to hear is God. When he says be quick to hear, slow to hear, be quick to hear. When he says those things, What he's telling you is, look, the world has a voice. It's constant. It's going all the time. You need to hear the quiet voice of God. 
slow to speak, quick to hear. You need to hear what God is saying, and you can't hear what God's saying if you're still tuning in to all the other stuff. God allowed this trial in your life for a reason. Remember we said it was probably the only thing that would get your attention and turn you to God. Why would you turn to God and then listen to what the world has to say? He's trying to shake you up. He's trying to get you to focus on his truth and to show you what's real and what's true. So in a trial, when he says, be quick to listen, it's God's voice that we want to hear. There's an anger reflex built into our flesh. And he tells us, look, your first fruits. Do you know you now have a new way of responding that you never had before in your entire life? A new way of manifesting the righteousness of God. you got to let the initial shock of the trial pass so that you can get a perspective on what God's doing. You see, on my car radio, I have several presets, favorite stations that I like to listen to. I'm almost always listening to one of these stations. And in fact, one of them is my go-to station. It's my home station. I tune into that frequency almost all the time. Throughout my life, different frequencies have held that prime position, depending on my life circumstances. You see, prior to Jesus, you and I have been tuned in to the world's broadcast of truth. We've been bombarded with it from the time we were born. It's all we knew until we knew Jesus. The world's perspective on truth. The world telling us how to think, how to react, how to behave. James says, you've been reborn now. You need to tune into a new station as your go-to. That's no longer your truth anymore. You need to stop listening to it. While the world is spinning around us, while people are freaking out, we're to turn off all that noise and listen to God's truth. James tells us to be quick to listen. And we've got to be in a quiet place to hear the voice of God. In trials, you have to learn to quiet your mind, to control what used to control you. It's in trials that your spirit tells your mind to shut up. It's in trials that your spirit says, that's not true, stop it. The key part of trials is letting the Holy Spirit that's now in you take over and overwhelm the mind that used to control you. In our natural fallen state without the Holy Spirit, we're left trying to understand this world based on what our minds tell us to think. We've been under the control of our mind since birth. Something happens, our mind tells us what we should think and do. And then we respond. Satan loves that. Because he's good at messing with our mind to convince you to do what he's deceived your mind to believe. We spent years abiding in our minds, praying to ourselves, trying to understand how to interpret what happens around us, and then responding in a way that best protects us, best, best protects our, our uh, credibility and shortens the trial. That's what we've been trained to do through our mind. We have in a sense been news reporters on our own life, telling us what we should think, spinning truth to our advantage, making excuses, blaming others, whatever works. The best example of a fallen worldview is to watch the news on TV. Something happens, 
immediately they break in and they start reporting on it. They have no idea what's true. So they do so without any idea of what the news is because it's too new. They haven't heard enough to know what's going on. Half of what they say, or okay, 95% of it's going to turn out to be false, but it doesn't matter because they've got breaking news they haven't yet investigated. They're so quick to report that they've not realized they have nothing yet to accurately report. Doesn't matter, though, because they've already set their agenda. They can use any news story and twist it to their advantage. Doesn't matter if it's Fox, CNN, MSNBC, all of them. They inspire millions to join them in their uninformed, unreliable, and uninvestigated definition of truth. That's what the mind does. Just when they think it can't get worse, they bring in somebody with some credentials. And they put that person up, and he's supposed to tell you what he thinks it means, what he thinks might be happening, how this could affect the world and all the things around it. He's giving you the worldview, and because he's a world expert, he wants you to just nod your head and go, yes. Only later do they admit that they got most of it wrong. But they shape every situation to try to get you to their truth. The events don't matter. The accuracy doesn't even really matter. As long as they can shape your mind to believe what they predetermine they want you to believe. That's how the mind works. That's how the world's view works. So imagine during your next trial, a breaking news event pours across your screen. You turn on the radio and they're talking about your situation. Experts are telling you what's happening, what you're likely thinking, and what your next action should be. They don't even understand what happened. They miss half the facts. They make assumptions based on lies and even well-meaning interpretations. But there they are, the news reporting on your trial. Picture them going to your neighbors. You've seen this all the time, right? They go to the neighbors and they say, they cast doubt on your character by saying basically, I never thought he could do this. Assuming that you're guilty. I just never thought he could do it. Now they're outside your house. And they're reporting the news. We bring you this breaking news. They've spotted you looking through your window. Looking at them. Jim, what do you think that means? How will that change the investigation? They're actually looking out the window. Janet, can you tell from which direction they're actually looking? Is there something specific they're looking at? What could it mean that they're looking out the window? But one thing that we know for sure, they're in there and they're looking out the window. We'll get back to you as this drama unfolds. Can you imagine the news swarm reporting on your latest trial, how fast you turn off the TV? If people were talking to you about your life the way they talk about other people's lives, how quickly you'd turn off the TV. How quickly you would retreat to your safe place. How quickly you would run from the lies they're spreading to the truth that you know is true. How quickly you would run to your shelter to get away from them. How fast you'd find your safe place. Surrounding yourselves with people that you can trust, that you know love you, that don't believe lies. You would immediately say, why do people listen to these reporters? They don't know what's going on. All they care about is being sensational at my expense. They're using me for their own benefit. They don't care about truth. They're not seeking truth, and they probably don't know where to find it anyway. That's exactly what James is teaching here. 
Your mind has been controlled by your warped world view. Like news reporters on the front lawn, your mind has been criticizing, critiquing, and telling you every false truth that you've embraced. Your mind is likely bombarding you with, you're not good enough, you're not there, you can't do this, you deserve this, no one will love you if they know this. Your mind has been bombarding you with stuff, and you and I have chosen to listen to it. Just like people choose to watch the news. But now we're first fruit. Now we have the Spirit of God. Now we don't have to listen to that stuff anymore. The first thing James says, when you're in a trial, turn off the worldview. Shut it down, because it does not matter. God has brought you through a trial for a purpose. This is you and Him, and nobody else matters. The trial is for you. Be quick to listen, you new spiritual beings. But turn into a new frequency. Don't listen to the junk you've been listening to. Go to your safe place. Abide in Christ. Hide from the world and those that want to attack you. Listen for his truth. Tune into what he is doing. Turn off the world and all their ignorance and be quick to hear the truth of God. We have the truth of God literally soaking every cell in our body. You are in Christ and he is in us. Through the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Why in the world will we listen to what other people think about our trials? It's like watching the news and thinking you've discovered truth and then you realize truth doesn't even matter to them. So James is saying new first fruits of God. When trials hit, run to the safety of God's protection. Tune out the storm being played out in the minds of men. Be quick to hear God and God alone. Abide in him. Let Jesus deal with the world and its ignorance. Let him fight the battles for you. You just abide in his truth. Let time wash over your situation. You don't have to act right away. Allow God through time to better define for you what's going on. No event in your life catches God by surprise. You might be surprised, but he's not. He promises to give wisdom to those who are in going through trials, but not if they waver in faith. In other words, when you go through trials, you have a choice of what you're going to listen to. The old frequencies that were pre-programmed in your mind, that are driven by Satan and lies and untruths, or you can turn on the news station that tells you God's truth, full of joy and faith and the command to be still and abide. You can't turn into both, by the way. If you try to do both, all you get is static. As followers of Christ, you've got to decide, am I going to listen to the world's view or listen to God's view? I can't do both. And I can't go back and forth. And if I'm in the middle, all I hear is static. While the world freaks out about your trial, you position yourself to hear from him. Put aside all the noise, abide in him, and tune your frequency to hear only his truth and only his voice, and agree in advance to respond to nothing else. James says we have to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us through trials. We must allow no one in our lives to determine truth for us. We need to be slow to anger and we need to almost never act out in human anger. That's what James is going to teach us. He's going to contrast now the difference between human anger 
and godly anger. You see, human anger is man responding to the mind. Immediately, fully, with judgment and revenge. You can see it in them. They just want, they're a wrecking ball. Protecting their image, protecting themselves, going after whoever, do whatever they have to do to protect their reputation. God's anger is measured, calculated, never in judgment, never trying to hurt somebody. It's always with perfect timing. God's response to anger allows us to develop a truth before choosing how he wants us to respond to that truth. Most of the time, our response in anger only makes the situation worse. James tells us that we're first fruits of Christ. Our interpretation of what's going on, our ideas about what's happening are irrelevant. God doesn't need to hear what we think is true. He needs us to surrender what he already told us is true. Abiding in Christ involves being quick to hear and slow to speak. Human anger almost never improves the situation. Think about Jesus getting angry in the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house shall consume me. At this point as an adult, Jesus has probably attended 20 Passover services. 20 times he's made the pilgrimage. Those money changers and vendors didn't just show up this time. They've been there as far back as Josephus can remember. And probably prior. They'd been there every year. Every year Jesus went into the temple. There were the money changers. Every year. And Jesus recognized it was wrong every single year. He's God. That's counting to 10 in years twice. They were taking advantage of travelers who had to buy sacrificial animals and had to trade foreign currency to do so. It was a game they played. You have to have a perfect lamb. Oh, I happen to have one. But I only take rubles. Oh, I don't have rubles. Oh, well, good news. My buddy over here does money exchange. They were ripping people off and they were just coming trying to sacrifice to God and it made Jesus angry. It was wrong every year. They were in the temple every year. Yet this year, in this moment, Jesus erupts in anger. Why? Because it was the Father's will that had happened in this moment and at this time. When he first noticed this sin, he was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He took the situation to the Father and only did what the Father told him to do. It made him angry, but he didn't act out based on human anger. He turned it over to God and allowed God to assess when and if anything needs to be done about the situation. As he processed with the Father, his anger built. 
It was a righteous anger. Now, not the human anger, not the reflex of protect myself. This was God is being offended, and it offends me. It's a righteous anger that's building. He didn't lash out, pun intended, or on a whim in a moment of lack of control. It wasn't like he went through the temple and he lost it. No. His action was measured, appropriate, and focused on protecting the righteousness of God, not his own image. Anger is not a sin. Our response to anger usually is. And almost every time you act out in human anger, based on your fallen flesh and deceived minds, usually you have judgment in your mind, and therefore it's a sin. Anger is the emotion that we use to try to bring ourselves justice. We use anger to protect our reputation, We use anger to solve situations. Godly anger, anger that does not sin, is nothing like that. Godly anger comes from time spent abiding in Christ, surrendering to and hearing his heart, and doing only what he instructs you to do, if anything. His response is always measured, it's always appropriate, it's not out of control, it's righteous. Notice John says, zeal for your house will consume me. Notice a very key point here. Jesus wasn't acting out in an uncontrolled moment of anger. He's not angry at the merchants. He long ago forgave them. He's acting out in his zeal for God's house. They were desecrating it, and he stopped it doing so in the time and moment that the Father had preordained. God said act, so Jesus act. He didn't kill them, didn't belittle them, didn't even take their money from them, didn't curse at them, didn't turn the crowds against them, didn't make them an example. He simply responded with measured response of righteousness. Take these things away, and then the instruction, do not make my Father's house a house of trade. This is one of the best examples in Scripture of the Spirit of God soaking the anger of God. The focus was not on the men, it was on the value of the house of God. The problem here wasn't really what the men were doing, although that's a problem. The problem here is it's tainting the house of God, and that's God's righteousness, and that needs to be protected. Look at the next verse. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's the goal, you know, right? I mean, don't miss this. The only thing that matters in any trial we're going through is to preserve the righteousness of God, not our reputation among men. We're first fruit. Our job is to represent and protect and guard and defend the righteousness of our God. The goal of those who've been reborn in Christ is to manifest their new life during and through the way they handle trials. How do we do that? How do we stop acting in our flesh and abide in Christ? Or as James says, put away all filthy Filthiness and wickedness. Die to your flesh. Stop feeding that part of you driven by Satan. Note every single word here in this next verse. 
receive. He says you need to receive what? The implanted word. In other words, you need to receive truth. You need to receive, embrace, accept, recognize the gift, accept it with grace. You need to accept the truth of God's word. And notice it's not just the truth. You need to accept that it is implanted in you. As followers of Christ, as surrendered people in the spirit, the truth of God is in you. It's been implanted in you, not because you knew it or memorized it, but because God put it there when he regenerated you. You cannot earn and don't deserve God's truth revealed to you. You did nothing to get it implanted in your soul. You didn't earn it, you didn't choose it, and you're not worthy of it, and neither am I, but it's there. And that realization brings you to a place of what the scriptures call meekness. You don't deserve it. But somehow, some way, God has got his word implanted in you. And you are a first fruit of those to come. And you no longer have to operate in your mind. You can operate in the spirit of God. And you're no longer controlled by the news and the media and the people that want to weigh in on your life. You're now controlled by Jesus and Jesus alone. Meekness. The world defines meekness as as being quiet, a gentle nature, easy to get along with, very submissive. People who are meek, the world says, don't take offense easily. That's what most people think meekness is. They, they think it's weakness. Godly meekness means people don't jump to conclusions or judge people in the sense of condemning them. John seven twenty four: do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Meekness doesn't judge based on our appearances or interpretation of what's going on. We judge only based on God's truth and in the manner determined by him. Prophet Isaiah said it this way, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. In other words, if you're going to look out at the world, if you're going to look out at what's going on, use God's righteousness, not what your eyes see and hear, because they are deceptive above all things. If meek people are going to judge anybody, they're going to judge themselves. James tells us in just a few verses, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. People who are meek realize that they're not better than anybody else. They're probably more aware of how fallen they are and how far they are from where other people think they are. How important is meekness? Well, Jesus thought it was important. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. A meek person doesn't overestimate their own self-worth. They esteem other people as better than themselves, as we're commanded to do. Meek people serve up. They serve other people. They give up their time and their energy for other people. They have an incredible power within them, the power of the Holy Spirit. They have enormous possibilities. They're not arrogant about it. They're meek. Paul told the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, your old mind, now you have a new mind. Your new mind is Christ. Who through, he was a form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Only those who are spiritually mature can be strong and meek at the same time. They can with joy be worldly weak. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of everything, but in particular, meekness, strong and wise. Never really affected by what the world does. He was way above that. Had all the power in the world at his disposal, could do anything he wanted to do, had no fear at all, focused on the righteousness of God and living his life to only bring glory to the Father. He was meek. The perfect demonstration of everything of God. Yet he chose to appear weak and did it with joy. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Love that, the meekness of wisdom. Paul tells the Colossians, put on them as God's chosen ones, there it is again, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, there it is, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I hope it's obvious that if we have to put something on, that means we're not wearing it now. Right? I mean, as new believers, we have to put on these things of the Spirit because in our old life, we weren't putting those things on. We didn't have access to it. Meekness is not something that in our flesh we aspire to. I've rarely heard somebody when I'm interviewing for a job say, what's the best thing about you? Meekness. I'm really meek. I mean, I am meeked out. Every day I focus on getting more meeked than I was before. I really want to come to your company and I want to be meek. But meekness comes from the Holy Spirit. You better hire that person. It's an inner strength. A strength that allows us to put God's righteousness ahead of our reputation. Let me rephrase that. If you want to know what meekness is, it's having the power of the Holy Spirit in you operating to the point that you can put God's righteousness above everything that has to do with you. Amen. To care more about what people think of God than what they think of you. In our flesh, during trials, we want to bring honor and glory to ourselves. We worry constantly about what everybody else is thinking. We want to spend what's happening to make ourselves look good. It's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. We respond in anger as a primitive response of self-preservation. Everything's focused on ending the trial and protecting our image. But those who operate in the Spirit during trials are totally focused on bringing honor and glory to Christ. I'll stay here as long as it takes. 
I'm not trying to protect myself. His righteousness comes first. His truth must be manifested. People need to see his greatness, not mine. The only thing that matters is that God's will is done and we grow by surrendering. We persevere and in the process, God is glorified and that's the point of the trial. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. You see, the world is deaf to the things of God. It's not surprising that James tells followers of Jesus, be quick to hear God's voice. There'll be a lot of voices bombarding you with the world's truth. You listen for God's voice. God is speaking to us constantly, including right now. Some are tuned to that frequency, some are not. Many of us are still trying to hear both frequencies so we can choose one when we need to. I'll listen to what the world says. I'm going to listen to what God says, but I'm going to kind of lean this way a little bit so I can still have some control. I'm going to be over here. I don't hear either clearly, and I certainly haven't heard God's voice in a very long time, but everything's staticky. We're trying to hear two opposing frequencies at once, and we can't. One is of the world, one is spiritual. Too many believers are what James called double-minded. What's double-minded? I'm trying to listen to two frequencies at once. We're first fruits. We are the evidence of transformed lives. If the world's going to see what God does in lives, they're going to see it in us. When we walk out of this room, when we go to work, when we go down the street, people are going to look at us and they better see something different. We're the best example of what Christ would do if he was here walking with us on earth. The Holy Spirit is in us. People should see a difference. Nowhere is it more evidence than when we go through trials. It's in trials that we allow the Holy Spirit to shine through us. It's in trials that we allow the world to see what a true believer who's tuned into the Spirit of God does. We should look really weird to people. They should think, don't miss this, that we're crazy. What did James think about his brother during his ministry? He thought he was crazy. What did you think before you came to Christ about Christians? You probably thought they were crazy. I hope you did. Because it's our craziness, it's our difference that keeps us different from the world. They shout for us to do something, we say, no, I'm just going to abide in prayer. They tell us how sorry they are, and we tell them how joyful we are. They give us their opinions, and we focus only on God's truth. They expect us to be worried, concerned, angry, and freaked out, and instead we have God's peace, God's power, God's truth, and God's patience. They expect us to attack others in violence and anger, and instead we just cover them with forgiveness and love. They expect us to power up while we're shutting down. Quiet resolve characterizes those in the Spirit of God. It makes those in the flesh very uneasy. It's power that can't be manipulated. It's the power of meekness manifested, and the world fears it. See, the world fears people who are, have an inner strength and no fear, 
who cannot be manipulated by their lies. People who put God's righteousness ahead of everything else, including their own lives and their own reputations. People who live out what we often sing, this world has nothing for me, I'll follow you. They don't know what to do with that. Why aren't you freaking out? Freak out so I'll feel better. No, I'm not freaking out. I'm a child of God. I'm a first fruit. I'm walking in the spirit. I'm doing what God says to do. I'm good. You see, the world can't wait to weigh in on your next trial. To explain their truth and to tell you what you should do and what you should feel. They want you to and I to freak out like they would do in the same circumstance. Misery, they say, loves company. James says, consider it joy. Surrender and abide. Let God's truth wash over you and define you. Trust in God and he'll make you complete, lacking nothing. You may be struggling with a trial right now. You're either in one, coming out of one, or going to one. God loves you too much not to stretch you and grow you in your spirit. You may need help trying to understand what God's trying to teach you. You see, part of abiding is surrounding yourselves with people who have the Holy Spirit. Allowing them to come alongside you to build your strength. To encourage you. To encourage you to persevere. To remind you of the things that God has told us. After the service, we have a prayer team. Come alongside you. Join you in your trial. If you want to come down here and celebrate what God's doing in your trial, you want to come down here and and talk to somebody about it who's full of the Holy Spirit, you need to surround yourself with people who know truth because you're being bombarded by those that don't. They'll be available at the altar after the service. You see, when trials strike, surrender, abide, and clothe yourself in meekness. Clothe yourself in God's righteousness and his truth. Then let God show his power to an unbelieving world through you. It's in trials that you and I get to be God's megaphone to a deaf world. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let's pray. God, you have so much to say to us about trials. You have so much to say to us about how we are to respond when things don't go our way. And the odd thing, God, is it's no different from everything else you tell us. Get over ourselves, die to our flesh, surrender to you, and do whatever you tell us to do. It's real simple. But it's countercultural. It's against everything the world tells us to do. And honestly, God, it's against everything we've been taught to do in our mind. We have to learn how to live out our life in the Spirit. We have to learn how to grow in the Spirit. We have to learn how to use this incredible gift you've given us. We have to grow into this. So God, help us to be not only hearers of the Word, but doers. Help us to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Help us to go through trials the way Jesus went through trials, giving them the weight they deserved, but focusing on spiritual things and heavenly things, caring more about the righteousness of God than what happens to him. Help us, God, to follow Jesus, to do what he did, to live the way he lived. We thank you, we love you, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.